Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the 16th of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at thebuglepodcast.com. That, that bit's important. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tiny Revolutions, James Lugosi. Hello. Hello. I'm applauding everyone on. I just like it. I feel like it gives a good injection of energy for the start of the pod. It's a real monkey see, monkey do thing as well, because I just started clapping as well. I'm, like, I'm clapping myself on. Well, everyone else has clapped themselves. I'll see. There you go. Because otherwise yeah. it's just one person clapping and I might feel bad about myself. That's true. I don't want you to be alone, but you are clapping me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Welcome to the podcast. Thank um, you. Let's contextualise you uh, for anyone listening who hasn't heard of you, although I know you from doing comedy in the UK for for quite a long time, we've known each other, Uh, but you are a stand-up comedian. Yes. And other slashies, writer? Uh, Yes, I'm a writer, uh, playwright. Um, I've written uh, New Zealand's longest uh, live political satire series. I've written it so long now, I've passed it on to other writers. Oh, uh, so you created it? Yeah. Okay, Uh, I didn't know this. Well, we didn't have anything. Uh, so I, I kind of got drunk and, um, and put my foot down in a drunken righteous way and wrote it. And that was 10 years ago. Um, it's kept We're not that on. old, James. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, well, when so, you were a teenager. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a child prodigy. Um, I, and then I'm an activist uh, and as well, I'm involved in various charities and things. And um, occasionally I lecture on politics as well. So this is why you're perfect for this podcast, because Tiny Revolutions is all about um, comedy as a force for social change, political good. Can we change things? How much of a difference can comedy make? And you're someone who's sort of on the front line of these sort of things with the shows that you've done. You've done a a show in the past about gollywogs. Uh, Yeah, Britain, let's talk about gollywogs. Yeah, how did that play out? Uh, it It was a lot more fun than Australia. Let's talk about the gollywogs. But that was a good training ground for um, all of the crazy responses you can get. As I don't know if you've watched the news this week, but Australia, not great with being called out on its racism. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, uh, I thought things were getting better. 
I thought that we were sort of reaching a point in Australia, and I know that there is a huge amount of collective guilt about what's happened to, to First Nation people. Mm. Uh, but, uh, I mean, the whole situation with, with refugees and immigration and, well, we'll talk about the Pacific Islands and New Zealand, because you grew up in New Zealand, right? Yes, and that's sort of how I've contextualised my work. Uh, the last couple of years I've run to the UK and to Australia as I try and anchor my stories in New Zealand and use that as a psychological buffer to get people to be able to buy into the ideas of my show. So right. it's kind of like, hey, I'm just talking about something that happened in New Zealand. And then you sort of see them go, oh, yeah, he's actually talking about things that happened to us as well. Yes, uh, yeah, because you're Samoan. Yes. And you say Samoan. Samoan, yes. Uh, and my mum is Welsh. Uh, from, that is um, a great mix, by the way. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, there's more, there's more of us than you think, I, I, because they find me online. Right, I work at Simone Welsh. Yeah, the Simone like Welsh. Scottish Italians. <laughs> yeah. There's a load of those. I have Romani Gypsy and Scottish and Welsh oh, oh, and English. So yeah, loads. Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's, it's a really funny thing when you're mixed race, because you find like, like there's this weird, uh, black people talk about it um, especially UK and American of the ICU you see me thing right uh, what is that explain that to uh, me you're in a, a, a predominantly Caucasian uh, environment and there's like only one or two black people and you look at each other and like yo I see you do you see me it's, it's kind of like hey I acknowledge I see you being in this non place for us right um, and mixed race uh, kids kind of have it in that environment as well like if I'm with all my Samoan family and there's someone else near there who's like a mixed race then we'll kind of go hey we'll check in with each other and see what the story is uh, and I had it in Finland with a Native American who was uh, we were in the museum and just kind of saw each other and just kind of like gave a head nod and that was really it like, Is Finland super white? Finland is incredibly white They were staring at me on um, public transport and in bars And I thought it was like a terrorism thing Because I've had that in the past right. decade um, But it wasn't, it wasn't, it was a refugee thing Because the Finnish people are also real straight talking So this guy asked for a drink And he was like, alright, but first, are you a refugee? And I went, no, I'm from New Zealand, I'm a tourist And everyone in the bar relaxed Wow, like that's was... quite sad as well in a way though, isn't it? It's one of those things where you're like, there's relief for you, but then also sadness about generally what that says and means. Oh, totally. But it was very cool in terms of my partner at the time was finished. That's why I was in the right, country. Right. And she had never seen it. Like, we talked about it in New Zealand, but New Zealand's a very different environment. But then when we were in Finland, she like saw the, like, the reaction. I was like, oh, right. Okay. Sometimes you can't uh, contextualise or understand until it's offered to you in such a way. Uh, I was told a story recently through a friend of a friend about um, the interview process and applications for jobs and about someone that is a friend of a friend that works in a company that just throws away any names that sound foreign. And I was like, there's no way that people do that. There's no way. I won't, I won't name the comedians, but back in the day, uh, not that far back, but back in the day, I was told um, by a couple of comedians that Nokise, my last name, too hard, too difficult. Um, I write heaps of jokes about different ways people say it, um, but I, mean, I don't take offense to that. But they were trying to get me to change it to Jimmy Samore. Because it rolls off the tongue, James, and you Samoa, and you, and your name it's James, but James Samoa doesn't. But Jimmy, Jimmy Samoa, that's what you. And I, I laughed, and then they were like, "No, we're deadly serious. You'll get more <laughs> wow. work on the circuit over here." I probably said it a bit different. I said Nakisi. 
Yeah, and like I say, it's fine. Like, oh. I, I do, I do jokes in my show of like I don't mind. I, I really don't uh, mind how people say the vowels as long as the vowels are in the right order. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're like yeah. Nakose Noski, uh, Nakoski. Some people put an extra K in there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So you're now. I remember reading this somewhere. I don't know this from you, mm-hmm. uh, but I remember reading somewhere that your name. What did your name translate to? Oh, uh, Knox. Like, yeah. As in, like, K N O X. Yeah, as like in a, the Calvinist Scottish leader. Um, right. my, my grandfather was a minister. Uh, and so, Nokise is a made up name in the Samoan language. That's the bigger joke for me. <laughs> um, and it's, it's yeah, the uh, Samoanized version of the name Knox, because there's no N in the Samoan language. Ah. Uh, we use a G. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I, I, I realised that I'm actually quite ignorant in some ways to the Pacific community. I didn't even realise specifically, I mean, I know that there's Pacific Islands, but I didn't yeah. think about the Pacific community on a whole as being this kind of, I would, I guess I think about New Zealand. I always thought you were, yeah. I, I knew you were Samoan, but I always had in my head that you were a Kiwi, that you yeah. were from New Zealand and that's who you were and that you had that sort of heritage. You were, were you born in uh, no, I was born in New Zealand. There's a very strong Samoan community in New right. Zealand. Auckland, right. uh, New Zealand's largest city, is also the largest Pacific city in the world. So yeah, I'm, I, I identify as, as, a, as a Kiwi of, of Samoan and Welsh heritage. I like to be honest when I don't know something and be willing to be educated on it. So that's, yeah. uh, that's what I find really interesting. And one of the stories that we wanted to talk about, because I know you've mentioned this briefly uh, to me before, which I feel fits so firmly within what this podcast is about is that you did some gigs in Guam. Yeah, which was uh, crazy. Um, there is a, it's a thing called the um, Pacific Arts Festival, and that is a festival with all the Pacific Islands send delegations. I didn't go as part of the Samoan delegation. I went as a subsection of the New Zealand delegation who sent their indigenous people, Maori, but then acknowledged that there was such a heavy Pacific presence in New Zealand that they sent 20 Pacific Island performers. I found out later I was the first stand-up comedian to go. Um, and we went, it's in a different island every four years. So it was like the Arts Olympics of the Pacific. Oh, wow. Indigenous people from all over. Australia uh, sent some people. Australia's delegation was quite hilarious because it was all of these amazing indigenous performers and then the government representatives who were all Caucasian. Um, oh, which, that says so much. That's uh, so terrifying, isn't it? It's, it's like, here we are in the arts... Yeah, performing for you whilst meanwhile all of these white men are making decisions about our lives and it, our land yeah and it was not a great photo op uh, yeah. then Australia is so great at having bad photo ops <laughs> and um, they hadn't had stand up com- they'd had stand up comedy sorry I'm, I was doing a disservice there to other performers uh, my friends the Laughing Salmons which is a, a Pacific um, double act had performed there they hadn't had political stand up um, and I was doing a show there called Big Words, which is a weird show for me because it's the show, it's kind of like a schism show in my career. It's right. when I realized I had to go and do theater and poetry and other forms, other art forms, because my stand-up was getting too angry. Right, yeah, right. Like, so you, you felt like I've left the realm of being able to be light and joke about things that don't matter because I care too much about this other stuff. Yeah, and it's that thing of like, these shows are informative and entertaining, but not funny. Right. <laughs> like, I could feel that they weren't funny. Yeah. And so, um, but I'd remade the show. Um, it's on imperialism. The show, it's called Big Words, and it's all about language as a tool of imperialism. 
And so New Zealand government had asked me to come and perform it in the Pacific Festival. And I retooled. And it was the weirdest thing for me because I'd never performed to a 90% Pacific Island audience. Uh, everywhere I got, Australia, New Zealand, LA, it being, you know, 50-50, 60-40 max. Max, 60% Pacific Islanders, 40%. Now I'm in Guam, I'm in a university theatre, 500-seater, um, and 90% of the crowd are Pacific Islanders, 10% are other. Uh, and the show completely flipped. Like, I was supposed to do 50 minutes, I did 90 uh, oh, okay. Flipped. I was because I was like, I don't know which way you mean that. Does that mean? Yeah. Does that mean it went incredibly well or incredibly badly? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Southern Hemisphere rules. It went well. Um, <laughs> it, it was a weird thing. It's like, and people were the only time I've experienced something similar is when I've done gigs to Black Americans. Uh, right. Sort of makes sense because Guam is American, whether right. America wants to admit it or not. People were standing up in their chairs. People were like crying. People, people, like people were crying, which is a weird experience for a stand-up to have, like and, and real emotional experiences. So I did the fifty minutes um, show, walked off, got brought back on, and did another forty minutes. And that forty minutes was just pure Pacific stand-up. Like it was not for anyone else. It, right. I was doing in jokes that we'd done at church when I was a kid. Like right. just right. like that's brutal. amazing, and I love that. Going, is, this is not for this is just for you. Yeah, like that feeling that someone is catering for you or cares enough or knows you enough and is one of you that they can go. This is just for us. But also, kind of jokes that we all because no one cuts or criticizes. Um, you know, people do, and it's not a Pacific thing, it's a community thing. So, like in North London or East London, no one's going to cut your suburb like the people who live in the suburb right, next, next door. To you. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah same yeah. thing in the Pacific. So, no one cuts Tongans like Samoans and Fijians, like it's the same kind of vibe. But I wouldn't necessarily do those kind of jokes in a New Zealand crowd, even. Because Do you feel like you would be giving them tools or weapons to attack those yes, people? Yes, absolutely. Right, so this is a really interesting line in stand-up comedy. And I used to talk about this quite a lot with my friend Stuart Black when we talked about Bernard Manning and kind of going, the problem with Bernard Manning is when he did all this misogynist and racist stuff, that there was him making people laugh. But what he'd done, you know, and those people that enjoyed that, and you go, that's a history in time. But was it more than just the comedy? What he essentially did was... In, Powered or gave racists mm. tools to be able to be horrific yeah. about, um, and so he wasn't. It wasn't about his community. It was about other people. So, and that that's a really. I think there's a really interesting line there of kind of going. At which which points are you empowering, and which points are you? So within that, you're going. This is us mocking. It's like kind of like if you say something about your parents, and then someone else does. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. I'm allowed to say that they're really fucking annoying, but you're not. That's so rude. You yeah, know? yeah. It's it's but suddenly I'm I'm allowed like in, in an audience, uh, and also they've never had someone do that in a public on stage kind of thing and so I and then I and then it, it developed even more and I start ripping the American government uh, and the representation not just of the Pacific because in Guam you have to understand we, st we are in an American military territory it's not even a colony they have no voting rights they have no uh, ability to set the course of their own destiny and we're at the Pacific Island Forum where all the Pacific Island flags are flying and above all of them is this giant um, American flag uh, and we, they made us listen to the Star Spangled Banner. Right. Um, on, did they pledge allegiance to it as well, like they do in it, schools? It kind of felt like you had to. Right. And then the 
but then Guam has its own. Guahan is actually the name of the country. Right. Like G-U-A-H-A-N. But it's Guam because the Americans couldn't say Guahan. Two-thirds of the island are a military base. And we've got a giant American flag. They play the American anthem over the speakers. They don't amplify the Guahan flag, the Chamorro people, the native people there. Their wow. anthem. Right. So they've got to sing it a cappella. And then... Bum, 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 bum. And Kiwis... Māori, Samoans, um, a lot of the Pacific. We ruffle in these days under that kind of uh, almost obscene imperialism. Right. Uh, and, and, and so, I like that as a description, like obscene. Yeah. At this point, it's obscene. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and so I just started going off on it about how it was so ridiculous for like, there to be everyone driving a Humvee on an island about the size of... Man, uh, four suburbs of London? Like, it's small. Like, if you were going to go from Chelsea to Westminster, like... That's a comparative size of... of, of Lengthwise. Yeah. Like, right. it's, not, it's not like the size of the entire city. Like, London's a bigger city than Because when you look at one pi- uh, uh, pictures of it, you seem to see... Is it the Two Lovers yeah. Leap Cliff? Yeah. And that one stretch of beach? And I was yeah. like, is it just because it's that big, or is that the nice side of the island? Well, there's the non-military side of the island. Right. Because the Americans just came in, and they're not leaving. Right. Like, and that was the weird thing, when Kim Jong-un, uh, is that the one we're up to? When, he's, <laughs> when he was threatening to nuke uh, America, he was like, I'll take out Guam. Yes, I remember this. Right, so the North Korean sort of threat, and then America asking the UK to come in and back them on that, and... And so th- th- that's why I wanted to do it in stand-up, because I reckon that's the amazing thing stand-up has with politics uh, in particular, is you're, like, what we're able to do as comics is lighten the entire feel of the room. Yeah. And then that lightness, sneak in the serious points. Yes. And I think that's something they hadn't realized, because they just felt they couldn't talk. Like, and I'd never encountered that. So did someone come in... I remember reading about this story. Did someone come in mid-show to see what was happening because they could hear noise? Uh, no, oh, that was the next... Two days later. Two days later, I, I was back at the university because they'd been in touch, a couple of the lecturers who were in the audience and asked me to come and take a class. Right. So I took a class on doing political stand-up writing. Dissidents. Pretty much. <laughs> and one of the students said to me, well, how do you write like an online blog or like a satirical um, blog that you're not going to get into trouble from the military authorities. And I went, yeah, I mean, I don't really think they're going to pay attention. And then everyone was like, no. And then the, the lecturer was like, oh, no, they, they do. They check people's websites. So that's kind of like in China with the social media situation, right? Or exactly. They the Great Firewall. Except we're not talking about China. We're talking about America, land of the free. Right. Unless you're one of their territories. So I had to get my brain around that. And we, made, we had a laugh about it. And then uh, two minutes later, the military police come into the room with guns because it's America. Yeah. Terrifying. Like, so I put up my hands because I'm a comedian. That's what you do. That's what, yeah. yeah so, <laughs> and I want to lighten the room for these, uh, terror, like these kids, these yeah. university 18, 19 year This is how I respond. I don't respond with, the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show the ridiculousness of this. Yeah. And, uh, and they like, laugh. I go, sorry, is, is something wrong? And they're like, oh, we heard a loud noise. And I went, oh, I, I think... That was the laughter. And they well, and we had a little laugh and then they left. And I finished the um, the lecture and talked to the kids and, and 
Uh, then um, I, I started shaking when I got back to the car and my friend who uh, drove me to get a coffee uh, and sit down and I, I started crying because I'd never experienced... Like, it, it was obscene to me, that's why I used that word, that my people, Pacific people, in, in Amer- under American protection, are actually under a, America's thumb. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way of describing it. The, the you know, it's, there's, there's one in feminism, I can't remember who the quote was from, and it's about women, but it's just, it applies to this, is that all we ask of our brethren is they take their foot off our necks. Yeah. You know, and that's what it feels like. It's like a, a foot on your neck. Well, you know, when, when Trump got in, I know it was a horrible moment for, for women around the world. Like, yeah. Because to see that there was a similar thing with Pacific people uh, in, in, in terms of, I guess it's just where the solidarity uh, between uh, feminism and race yes. can, can come in. And LGBT groups, because of LGBTQI, you know, because people who are oppressed. Yeah. Or, because as it, Hannah Gadsby described it, sort of in the margins, which is quite a nice... Yeah, that's, I really like that term for race yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. And it's, we had, specific artists had to have a conversation, and we got together because he doesn't believe in climate change. Now, the main region affected by climate change is the Pacific. It's our islands that are vanishing. Right. Uh, and it's our, our family members, our villages that will disappear by the end of the next century. And, uh, and the t- clock is ticking on that. So when America elects a president who doesn't believe, we as artists had to get together and go, right, so we're, we're, gonna, we're not going to make it. Like, if, even if they turn back the clock now, some of the islands are gone. How do we make artwork, comedy, dance, theatre, films that that can address it as a protest to it, yeah, as a reflect? Yeah. My way is to tell stories in comedy on the other side of the world. Yes. So that people like you are interested in the Pacific, so that my audiences in Edinburgh are interested in the Pacific, and maybe leave and go and, and research and yeah. listen and can and then can see it. Well, I've never even thought as, as well about the language of imperialism. I had a conversation with one year in Edinburgh in my show Madman. I talk about Jack Daniels and the way it's marketed. I have this whole routine about the fact that it's basically sepia-tinged racist nostalgia. <laughs> and it's very interesting because in America, that's not how it's sold at all. In America, it's sold as this cool DJs in clubs. But here, we have this almost like, you know, like a big redneck, redneck guy in a check shirt kind of mm. going... Uh, people don't car as much of a first sip when it's Jack Daniels' birthday, you know, and it's all real kind of. But it, the, the the motto is good time, uh, good old times in the South. And my point is, in 1866 in the <laughs> South, they were not good times for everyone. They were good times if you were white, uniquely if you were white. So I talked a bit about that in my show, and then these two guys um, who, uh, so it was it was Nick and Dee. They were playing in a band called Good Company in Edinburgh that year. They were doing a cabaret show with Phil Nickel and they'd come over from, some of them were from, they were based out of, I think some of them were from Tennessee, but they were based out of Austin. And uh, so this collective of musicians. But uh, uh, Nick was this like super talented, uh, uh, sort of, he would play keyboards, but could also play guitar. Like he was multi-talented. Uh, and Dee was the blind drummer who could drum and then play bass at the same time. So could have one hand on bass and be playing, like incredible. So the two black musicians in the group, and they came to see the show. And we had a conversation afterwards because they loved the routine about that. They kind of like stood up and applauded it. It was so sort of mad because 
the routine is and it treads a, it's, it's a kind of real line that it treads it took me a long long time to get it right because basically it looks like I'm going to say a slur the whole way through and mm. I don't but the point is that's what the advert is doing that's what you're doing you're invoking this time or this and I even feel weird about saying it in the context of this because people are like why does she think that's okay and I'm like mm. I never say it I never would mm. I never would I just kind of go that's what this is doing right mm. Um, and they loved it they got up and applauded and they were like it's so interesting seeing people talk about it in the UK also that's very much not how the drink is sold in America he said but this idea that we celebrate these periods in history that were really awful that there's this nostalgia there's this attachment and they were talking about playing in the south and in Florida and going into one place and one of the drinks on the menu was like a plantation cocktail or plantation drink. and they were like this is not cool like what the fuck are you doing so like you know you go to areas where they've still got that sort of colonial style of mm. you know like um, you know there are old buildings that kind of look like that but um, a Tawny Newsom who was on yesterday and it was off the podcast that we were talking about it but she was kind of saying that those buildings are still being built and it's like do you think black people are going to buy those like what's happening so that, that language, and that was the first time that I think I'd heard someone go, the word plantation, the idea of that, the idea that you're like going, oh, remember, is like this it's a form of continued oppression. So I, I'd like to know more about kind of the language of, uh, uh, you know, imperialism, as you describe it. Well, it's interesting because there's a thing going on in Australia and New Zealand next year, which the two, and it's just happened and uh, started over here this year, it's Captain Cook. And Captain Cook is uh, renowned as the man who discovered New Zealand and Australia, uh, which we always laugh about over there, the indigenous peoples, because we're like, well, he, he made connection. He arrived, but he didn't discover it. Uh, and the celebrations... Yeah, of you the, were all there, right? Yeah, everyone was already there. <laughs> um, and so a lot of uh, different artists from across the Pacific and Australia are collaborating or in conversation about presenting work, which isn't... Uh, some of it will be a critique of Captain Cook, but a lot of it is actually a counter-narrative, and that's the, the word used. And it's, it's, it's a fun way, I feel, just where comedy comes in, in showing the ridiculousness of the idea of the Enlightenment. Because right. the Enlightenment assumes uh, a concept of, of superior knowledge on everything. Right. And in the Pacific, Including your own environment. Yes, like and the, land. So in the Pacific, that, that's manifest best in navigation. So we all used to navigate by the stars and knew how to get across the Pacific um, by stars and passing that down through generations. The British banned navigation without a compass uh, and throughout the Pacific region. So it almost died out and it's only just come back in the last 20 years through a lot of hard work. Uh, and a few bits of loss of life because they had to re-navigate. Uh, but the, the kicker is, Cook didn't trust his compass, so when he arrived in New Zealand, he had a Cook Island, uh, no, a Tahitian. Right. Um, yeah, a Fr uh, French-Polynesian uh, navigator with him, um, who was like, when I think I can speak, I think I recognise these people. right. But people were like, oh, we should celebrate this all coming. But, the, of course, the Australians are like, well, that's kind of like the beginning of the genocide, mate. Yeah. And in New Zealand, they're like, well, this is the beginning of the troubles because uh, they did a lot of horrible things. Excuse me. <clears throat> We've arrived. Now yes. you'll do things properly. That The arrogance of that. 
I think what I, I always find fun when comedians come is we often present this kind of work and show the ridiculousness. And that kind of allows people to softly see quite a serious thing. Like, yes. Like with co- yeah, well, so like with that Jack Daniels routine, you yeah. can kind of, it's not a thing that you, you think about. It's just a thing where you go, I drink the street and you see the posters and you go, oh, that is. And it's only when you look behind it and you go, what is that evoking? Yeah. Like, no one's saying don't acknowledge Captain Cook's achievements in terms of navigating from the UK to the Pacific, you know, making European contact with Australia. But you can acknowledge it without celebrating it. I yes. Mean, you know, you can, you can say this is something that was achieved. You do not have to have bicentennial um, parades and fireworks going, look, this is when we got here. Because then you're kind of saying, oh, all that trauma that happened later, don't, don't worry about that. And I think it is hard to find a line where you don't. Sometimes I, my anger can overtake and I have to step back and go, can I make, make this funny? How do I make this funny? How do I expose the idiocy and the logic of a thing that I'm angry about? Mm. And it, within comedy, you always have to be able to do that. Whereas with other art forms... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Of protest with songs, for example. If you look at something like Nina Simone's Strange Fruit, Mm. I can't think of anything more... It's devastating every time you listen to that song. Mm. And what it invokes and how... I mean, she had Mississippi Goddamn as well, but I think Strange Fruit is one of those. And you can hear the passion and the anger within it but you know what you're the weird thing is about those kind of songs you know what you're entering into and you have to be ready for it and you have to want to listen to that whereas with comedy one of the beautiful things about comedy when you get it right is you can get those people who weren't ready or didn't want to listen to it and you go I'm just shining a light on a thing that you should know about and your own behaviour that you should be aware of I did a show this year on sports and it was it finishes with about eight minutes uh, of consent education um, because I've been doing some work with the Sexual Abuse Prevention Network in New Zealand, um, part of which is going into high schools and talking to 14-year-olds. And the reason they got me is because I do stand-up on 14 and 15-year-olds and me being a young, dumb 14, 15-year-old and being ignorant, and they felt I could talk to these guys in a way to get their information across. And so I kind of put some of that into the show, which I advertise as me just doing sports jokes. And then the last eight minutes is pretty much a very humorous, but still graphic, straight facts only. You're going to get electron consent. And you're going to get... And I get the audience chanting consent is fundamental. 
uh, and we just talk about how consent can be withdrawn. But it's still within the parameters of the show I've presented because I tie it to... It's a much cleverer way. It's a sneaky way of getting in going, these are the people that need to hear it but I need to present it to them in a way that they're not going to feel like they're being told off. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's fun as well for me as an artist, but also for my audience because I try and make it so they see it and then they feel cleverer and then in feeling cleverer, they feel empowered. Yeah. Because this idea that you protest or you... That's why I hate the, the narrative that protesters or activists are trying to um, tear us down and depower us. You know, you know, and when actually no, mate, we're all trying to empower each other. We're not trying to bring you down to our level. We're trying to lift ourselves all up. Yes. So we're all on the same level. That's empowerment. And yes. I think that comedy is such a great way to do that because we have an ability to draw in masses. As yeah, well. empowerment's quite nice when you think about the word like power, empower, power up. Yeah. It's up. Yeah. It's not power down. And it, <laughs> it's and, power up. And it feels lighter. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. Like I say, with stand up and with comedy, when we come into these real heavy things, we can make the room lighter. Uh, and so sometimes I get called into political stuff, and I know why I'm there. Or I'll get called into MC a conference, and I know what the conference is about, and I know why I'm there. And I'm there to make sure that people aren't sitting in a real heavy emotion yeah. for a prolonged amount of time, because then they start to get withdrawn or or tighten up, and they can't do what they need to do to push the narrative forward because I never try and present myself as the smartest guy no I think there's a great Shakespearean quote there and I think all comedians should know it or listen to it which is um, uh, the fool thinks himself to be a wise man but the wise man doth know himself to be a fool yeah none of us really know anything we know what we know which is a limited amount and we can always learn exactly and I I think I'm very much the ass uh, (laughs) well there's a and there's a Lisa Nichols quote as well I've mentioned Lisa Nichols probably on one of the other shows uh, but she's a kind of like speaker who talks about kind of like um, self-empowerment and uh, bettering yourself and positivity and hope and she's on Oprah's Soul Sunday quite a lot Mm. she's um, she's great but she had a line that really like sort of struck me because we can all get caught up in it, especially doing what we do and careers move and you see other people's careers move. And then at one point you're ahead and you're like, I'm doing so great. And then someone else appears and you're like, what does that mean for me? Or even in a room, you could be in a room, you could be trying to do a thing. It's not working, but you're like, no, 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 I'm right. Or you learn a new piece of information, whatever it is. It's great advice as a human. She just said, murder your ego every morning. Yeah murder your ego never be afraid to sit at the foot of someone who can teach you something that's what I love about getting into politics and getting into activism is that I walk into rooms and I'm an entertainer and I'm a damn good one but I'm not I'm not the person that's going to give you all the information you need on the subject yeah. but maybe I can make a show that makes you interested in finding that person make you ask some questions and make you think in a different way so on, along those lines have you ever received like a communication like either an email or someone after a show that's come up and said it means something to me like you've spoken about this topic or you've spoken about us you've spoken about Pacific Islanders you've spoken about Samoans in a way that I you know like that, that it means something so you go oh that is a positive I mean and you've described lots of positive things but you know like an individual have you ever had an email that makes you go oh that's why I do that yeah yeah I've had a I've had a couple over the years and some messages uh, I did a, a festival in Australia 
um, last year at Woodford um, Folk Festival and I, I took my Gollywog show there and I um, got invited by the, the local mob uh, in Australian Indigenous to do their stage which right. is called the Songline Stage. Right, so you call that, so like the local mob, I'm instantly thinking of Italian gangsters, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, but the mobs, what the, that's, their, that's their word uh, right, for, right. for, you know, tribe, um, for, their, for their people of the land there. Right. And they said, would you come and do the show at our stage, which was like 100 metres away from the stage I was performing in, but that was where the indigenous people were doing their big performances. I did one night there, and it, the whole thing was packed, like seven, 800 people, and uh, I came backstage and they said, oh, Uncle um, Albert wants to talk to you. And uh, Uncle and um, Auntie are kind of like uh, the, their names for their elders. Right. It's a, so it's a yeah. term of respect. Like, so he might not be someone's uncle, but he's the uncle of them. Yeah. So chief, I guess, is the way of putting it. We, we do that in the UK quite a lot. Instead of like in the States, they have Sarah or Madam, but I'll mm. have like, I'm not allowed to just say first name. When I was a kid, it would be like... Uh, Uncle Ian, Auntie Jean, Auntie yeah. Rita, that were friends of the family or people. It's yeah. A, yeah. So, uh, but I thought, oh no, I'm in trouble because he's an older <laughs> gentleman. And um, and he just came back and Aussies have, oh, God, I love the way that Aussies spin English. Um, and he just went, deadly, mate. And deadly is like yeah, a real great. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, deadly, mate. Deadly. Can we take a photo? And this guy's like a 70 year old. And it turned out he was like a local folk legend. Oh, wow. Is uh, that as well and, and he started I just ended up hanging out with them a lot and hearing their stories I've had it from Pacific young Pacific Islanders as well I got asked to speak at we had a gay uh, marriage equality yes the plebiscite plebiscite and stuff in New Zealand we had it uh, five years ago I think we legalised it but I was asked as a member of the Labour Party I'm a former member of the Labour Party but I was in it at the time and I was um, asked by young Pacific people to speak because I'm straight. I come from a Christian background. My family are very well known in the Pacific community uh, for being Christian ministers. Uh, and I was asked to speak at the Labour Party conference. And I saw a few of the speeches from Pacific people, and they were not in favour of right. marriage equality. A very imperial Christian background. For listeners who don't know Pacific history, were very gender fluid until um, Christianity showed up. Wow, that's really interesting. So this is a thing that's been imposed and yes. is now kept and held on to, right? Um, so I called up my dad, who is a very uh, renowned Pacific theologian, and had a quick conversation with him on bullet points on how I could hit back. And then I asked a couple of the Pacific Island MPs of the Labour Party to clear a pathway for me to be able to get my speech in before speeches closed. Um, and they did because they knew that I was a really good comedian. And so I went in and I did a three-minute speech, uh, which ended with a massive standing ovation uh, on how we couldn't just support gay marriage. It was fundamentally a Pacific ideology because me and my dad had quickly worked out how we could refute all the Christian points but still show them a pathway through Christianity into the Pacific ideology in support of marriage equality. Wow, so that, that must be tricksy. But then also at the same time, I always think with those kind of things... It's by going, it doesn't affect you. If it's yeah. not you, then th this can't hurt you. Yes. And it was the it kind of... It can't hurt you. It was a nice thing because I'm not a member of the LGBTQI community. Um, but they knew that I had the ability to talk to other people who were not members. Yeah. And sort of lead them to the bridge. Yes. So they could get across. Well, that's when you <laughs> see a real net result of something where your, your comedy and your politics uh, or your need for social change 
can collide to actually cause a change. And that's that's happened a few times in recent years, I think, that I've seen that here with some of the sort of feminist stuff happening. So, if, And that um, in Australia with the plebiscite recently, because mm. I talked about that, like, in one... In fact, it was Madman, the same show, because I couldn't believe it mm. when I was in Australia, like, how I would go to different towns, and I was on tour with Reese Nicholson, mm. and... Amazing uh, local, local people the way like some of like, the local people but local paper had written about him mm. like it was I was shocked I shouldn't have been shocked but I was shocked um, and the, the pushback that I felt when we were out and I would talk about so I made a point of talking about it on stage again it's not really my fight but sometimes it's quite nice to come in on a fight where you can yeah. and use your comedy to do that so when you were saying that you go I'm not part of that community but I saw a way that I could connect this with this. And in my case, it was like how I could expose the logic. And the logic I had behind that, that I found mind-boggling to me, was a woman saying to me after a show that, that you know, marriage is between a man and a woman, that's the way it's always been. And me going, well, you know, up until 1911, it was only men who voted, that's the way it's always been. Yeah. Like, maybe... And you just know, highlight the ridiculousness. Yeah, and then kind of go, but that, that interesting fact which not that many people knew at the time, is that, that Australia had women's suffrage seven years before the UK. So the joke was, how could they be so far ahead then and so far behind now? Time mm. difference. It turns out it's time difference, you know. But but to kind of highlight that, to kind of go, how we, you were at the forefront once and now you've regressed what's happened. So mm. just by highlighting that, being able to kind of link it to to feminism in a way, to, to be able to say, look at this. You it's, know. it's one of the jokes that I still find it makes Kiwis a bit uncomfortable is when I highlight, hey, we were the first country to give women a vote. And of course, people go, yes, New Zealand, yes. And they start clapping for themselves <laughs> like they were involved. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and then I go, but we, we don't pay women the same. We still have, and that means we have the largest gap because we're idiots. We don't realise what we're doing is creating the longest gap between Pay, um, voting equality and pay equality. Right. right? So we, if we don't sort out pay equity uh, in New Zealand, we will be on record as having the longest gap between giving women the vote and actually treating women as equals. Yes. In, in a working environment. And sometimes people just get it flipped. I did a recent, I did a panel discussion with Fathers for Justice and I understand the pain and I understand the, the meaning behind the movement. But there was this kind of like feminist and they're the problem and what they don't realise is that the patriarchy hurts them as much as it does us mm. by a society that says women are the mm. primary caregivers and should be the only ones and automatically should get custody of children by me going by you not giving proper maternity or paternity leave you know like it hurts both sides it hurts them as much yeah. as it does but they think that we're the problem for trying to make it equal and you go when we make it equal it's better for you because it means you have equal rights over your child and also that the, the leave should be equal between paternity leave and maternity leave you That's should both have the equal amount of time yeah what's that thing of uh, you know feminists are, are coming to uh, you know, take the men's rights and cut our dicks off, and yeah, and, and that's the reason men commit suicide more than than, than women. It's like it's not it's not the feminists. Oh, making... someone literally tweeted that to me the other day, going, "People like you saying men do this is what causes men to commit suicide." It's like, or or just as a counter offer, maybe it's the uh, toxic emotional stunting of men. Uh, due to the patriarchal society, which and, been yeah, racist. which tells us we can't talk, which tells men they can't talk about their emotions. Yeah, because emotions are for women. Yeah, 
yeah, with your shrieking hysterical outbursts. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it mad? Isn't it crazy that I, I always just find that so interesting that, that that people can't see that, and it. I've heard it for lots of things, you know. I've heard it like, well, we rape and murder you because feminism. We commit suicide because feminism. I shout at women on the internet because feminism. You, have you ever thought it's maybe you? Yeah. <laughs> Not feminism. And that's part of the consent conversation as well that I think is very interesting. I think there's there's a lot that needs to be said on both sides of that. I think active consent is something that needs to be taught to teenage boys. And I think women need to have a real conversation about sexual agency is power and also owning our owning our sexual desires and needs because there's a very interesting thing that that happens which is we're it's part of a dance that we're taught mm. men are taught to pursue women are taught to say no mm. or not give it up straight away but actually if we were taught like it's okay to own your desire mm. and if you want to have sex you can actively say you want to have sex you don't have to withhold it for any other and men you're waiting for a woman to actively say, yes, I want to do this. So I think it's both sides of those conversations that are really important that need to happen. But I, like I say, I always, I always find it fascinating when I, I just feel like it's better for everyone if we have gender equality. Well, it's also information. You know, the idea that information is power, so it's withholding information. Like, yeah. I know as a young man growing up, I was like, oh, there must be secrets there must be secrets to, to how to get any woman to sleep with you. That must be, you know, and then you're the man. Um, and, you know, you grow up and you realize that the secret is to listen. <laughs> that's, you know, that's not actually a cliche. If you, if you converse with women and you, like if, if your sexual interests are toward it, because you might be gay and yeah. you might not know that, uh, yes. you know, because you've grown up in a society where that's evil. I used to do a joke. Um, about how young Maori and Pacific gangsters, to me, stabbing people weren't tough. Uh, I had a mate who was a gay opera singer from a farming community in New Zealand. That's tough. That's the yeah. most gangster brother I know. Uh, and to, truth be told, his old man disowned him. Uh, he had to go out and make his own way. That dude was legitimately way tougher to me than any of the like big fronting dudes. When you're bold enough to be yourself in an environment that doesn't want to accept that, I think that is incredibly brave in areas where it's it's you know gay people are, are are repressed then going out and just being really kind of like bold about it you know and and have friends like that who've been like quite openly big about who they are and how they are and have received so much shit so exactly like that but exactly being from a small town or a community or having a family that have this very patriarchal or misogynist or like kind of old-fashioned attitude and ideals to push back against that and and be who you are is just an act it's sort of it's an act of courage really well this weird role comedians have found ourselves in now where we're like the counter news because I reckon a lot of Australians, and you see it, you know, if news is the new church in terms of it's the new sermon that people are getting on a regular basis because they're not going to church anymore, you know, or maybe they've got a double combo hitting them. Comedians are like the guys saying, hey, but here's the ridiculousness in that narrative. Because a lot of Aussies who I've met are good people who are racist. Some of them are sexist, like proper sexist. But a lot of them, when it comes to race, they're theoretically racist. Right. You know, they don't, they don't like these foreigners and they don't, they don't these people of color who come in, you know, um, but they haven't seen it. 
They yeah. haven't met Come into the country that they invaded. Come into the country, you know, <laughs> taking our jobs. It's like, mate, you're at my show. <laughs> I'm the foreign person of colour coming and taking the job. It's like, oh, yeah, but you're okay. It's like, exactly. You're, I'm pretty sure you're not racist, but you've just been reading this in your newspapers yeah. for so long that we've got to watch out for these people. It's like a lot of Pacific Islanders, I don't think, are homophobic. But they are, le- I mean, they are legislatively. Right. Because they've grown up in environments where they've said this is the way it's meant to be. And if you can kind of empower them to see the ridiculousness and feel like they can change the legislation, then that's how you, you're able as a comedian to implement social change. I feel like we're good at putting the emotions in the people who can actually do the stuff. Right. That's a really nice way of, yeah, that's a really succinct and beautiful way of putting it. I have a friend, she's dead now, but she was an, a mighty um, activist, artist, and uh, uh, she's actually in Edinburgh Museum on the, in the Pacific section. Her name's Teresia Tiaiwa uh, from Kiribati, and they put a quote of hers on the Pacific section wall, which said, we cry salt water so we know the ocean is in our blood. And she, she had a great saying, which is the system, implied men, women, every, the system is built uh, to break us down. So sometimes surviving is a protest in and of itself. Just staying alive till you have the energy to march. You don't always have to march. Sometimes you just got to stay alive. I think as comedians, sometimes our way of protest is just to like give energy and a bit of joy to people who are getting broken down. Oh, that's really that's really beautiful. And what a perfect way to end the podcast, I think, with that quote. Um, and you should definitely, we should probably all look up her work so that we are aware of who she is and what she did, and yours as well. Thank you so much for coming on uh, at Tiny Revolutions. Indeed, the perfect guest for the show in many ways. So uh, thank you so much. Thanks very much. Ruth. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.